Hello, everybody. We've missed you. This is Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're back with another episode of Just the Zoo of Us. So it has been a while since we have recorded, but we are coming at you live from isolation in our house, as many of you, I'm sure, are listening. Quarantine 2020. Yeah, we're we're in there. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about animals. Yeah, viruses aren't animals. No, they're are not even they? al- No, they're not even alive. <laughs> not even living cells. Yeah, take that. But the things we're talking about today are chock full of living cells. Many. Very many cells. Uh, This is Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite species of animals and review them and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We're not zoological experts. We try to get those, what's the word, good reputation? (laughs) Oh, there it is. We try to get those reputable sources. Reputable sources. Great. <laughs> You've gotten rusty. <laughs> so how does this work? I forget. Uh, do you go first? Do we go at the same time? <laughs> no. I'll you, start. You start. Christian's mad at me because he doesn't get to be on our guest calls that often. So, <laughs> so he hasn't recorded in a while. So his skills are a little rusty. But no, Christian, actually, you're up first this week. Oh, okay. Oh, and also, I didn't, I'm a bad host, and I forgot to put up the social media poll this week, so. There was one. Uh, it was just for me, though. So. <laughs> Sample size equals one. So, the species I'm bringing this week is the hippopotamus. Very good. Scientific name, hippopotamus amphibious. This species comes to us from the jungle gym queen, as well as... Megan Inez Clark. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. And I'm getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, African Wildlife Foundation, which can be found at awf.org, and National Geographic. So, let's talk about the hippo. Which, by the way, from this point forward, I will be referring to as hippo, which is short for hippopotamus. Really? I'm cutting down on them syllables. Is hippo really short for hippopotamus? I always thought they were different animals. She's, um, sarcastic. (laughs) That was a joke. Yes. I'm very funny. So hippomana. <laughs> you just said you were going to call know, them hippos. I know. But for this particular thing, I have to say hippopotamus comes from river horse in Greek. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, not horses. I could see where they would get that idea, though. Yeah. Four legs, a head, <laughs> a tail. <laughs> it's got... The defining <laughs> features of a horse. <laughs> It's got hoofy things on its feet, so they would... Oh, they got toes. Okay, well, never mind then. (laughs) They're ungulates, even toed ungulates. Yeah, ungulates, things with hoofy things on their feet. This species is also known as the common hippo. It is one of two species of hippo, the other being the pygmy hippo. That's the teeny one. Yes. I'm not going to talk about that one anymore. Sorry. (laughs) Let's talk about how big these fellas are. So for those that maybe aren't familiar with a hippo, they're big. Real big. They're so big. They can weigh between 1,300 to 3,200 kilograms, which is approximately 2,800 to 7,000 pounds. Males tend to be about 200 kilograms or 440 pounds heavier than females. However, males continue to grow throughout their life, while females reach their max weight around 25 years old. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. The largest hippo ever recorded was a captive male in Munich, Germany, that weighed 4,500 kilograms, which is almost 10,000 pounds. Uh, that's as much weight as 10 grand pianos or a thousand chickens. <laughs> <laughs> a 
we like brought beef, it home. beefy chickens. We brought it home. <laughs> Have you ever seen that meme that's like Americans will measure using anything but the metric system? <laughs> yeah, that's what you're doing right now. <laughs> How many uh, cheeseburgers is that? At least give it to me. Two. <laughs> At least two. Sure. <laughs> Greater than or equal to two. Give it to me in football fields or I don't understand. (laughs) Moving on to length. They are 209 to 505 centimeters long, including their tail. Uh, That is approximately 7 to 17 feet. I like that including their tail because their tail is like teeny. (laughs) I mean, it's still still 35 centimeters long, which is 14 inches. That seems negligible compared to the rest of the Yeah, yeah, it's true. And uh, at they... Their height is at 150 to 165 centimeters, which is about five feet. That's a big, big animal. Yeah. So this, imagine just this huge barrel of flesh, basically. <laughs> That's a good description. They're quite cylindrical. Yeah. They can be found in the rivers throughout the savanna of Africa and the main rivers of Central Africa. And that's over 30 different African countries. Also, Colombia. I think I know <laughs> about that. Yes. And almost the U.S., Almost. So close. So those are two fun stories I'll have at the end. By the skin of our teeth, we evaded this plight. (laughs) We almost asked for it. (laughs) So this hippo belongs to the taxonomic family Hippopotamidae. That's fun. I like that. (laughs) Which comprised the hippopotamuses. It's not hippopotami? That is a valid plural form of the word. You have options here. Yes. Uh, Like mentioned before, only two extant species... Let's talk about their evolutionary relatives. It's pretty interesting. Uh, what would you say their most close relatives are? <sighs> you might know this from previous animals. I have heard this, and I can't for the life of me remember what it was. I remember we said something was related to the hippopotamus, and I was very surprised by it. Yeah. And then, and now it's gone forever. It's gone from my memory. So, Is it whales? Yeah, cetaceans. Got it. There we go. So they they share a distant ancestor with the cetaceans. So one is not the direct descendant of the other, but they share a common ancestor. They're cousins. Yeah. Sure. So let's jump into our scores. Yay. I think I remember how these work. (laughs) Our first category is effectiveness. These are physical adaptations that help them do the things they're supposed to do in the places that they live. Mm -hmm. I'm giving the hippo a 9 out of 10. That's really good. They're next level, so to say. <laughs> so first, a skill that I would value greatly, they can make their own sunscreen. Really? Yes. So this has to do with their coloration. So their skin is like a gray purplish color mm-hmm. and then lighter on the underside. But you'll notice they have like a pink, almost red tinge to them. Yeah. Like when you see them in sunlight. Mm-hmm. So this is because they don't have sweat or scent glands, but they do secrete an oily red fluid that absorbs UV light and also prevents the growth of disease-causing bacteria. Wow. So that substance starts off clear, but turns orange-red once exposed to sunlight. It was once thought to be blood sweat. <laughs> That's horrible. I hate that so much. <laughs> but it is not. <laughs> I'm so glad it's not. Yeah. It's, that would have been so deeply unsettling. So it's it's made of two different acids that have been named after the hippo. I'm guessing that's this is where they were discovered. Sure. Because the name of those acids are hipposidoric acid and norhipposidoric acid. Uh, the roots of those words mean hippos sweat. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Give so, them their props. So yeah, they have built-in UV protection. Which Love that. Which me, as a... Almost translucent individual. (laughs) (laughs) 
Next point of effectiveness, they have webbed feet. Mm. It lets them move through the water pretty pretty good. They also do this funny thing. You'll kind of see videos of this where they're just kind of walking along the bottom of a river or body of water and then just kind of push themselves up. And they'll go up and down, up and down Yeah, <laughs> when they're playing. Can you explain what their feet look like a little bit to me? So being an ungulate. Yes. They have an even number of toes. I don't know that number. I'm going to guess it's between four and ten. Good job. On each foot. Um, but those toes are webbed, but also they spread out um, so that it distributes their weight better when they're on land. Okay. Because of their mighty heft. They've got quite a lot of mass to be propelling, mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. And uh, you would think with all that mass, they're slow. Would that be incorrect? It is incorrect. How terrifying. So they are surprisingly fast on land, or they can be at least. They can run up to 30 kilometers per hour, which is equal to 19 miles per hour. For, and they can do that for several hundred meters. That's pretty uh, impressive. So that's about human pace. Mm-hmm. Like the fastest human is faster than that, but still. Probably faster than I can run. Maybe. Although I imagine that would be some good uh, motivation to run as fast <laughs> as you can. I guess I would be surprised at what I could pull off if a hippo <laughs> was chasing me. Yeah. Now, also, they have these eyes, ears, and nostrils that are placed on top of their head. So we see this with lots of animals that spend a lot of time at the surface of water. So this lets it so that those organs are above the water where when the rest of their body is below the water. Okay, I remember talking about this with the capybara. Yeah. How, like, just the tiniest little bit of surface area possible is poking out of the mm-hmm. water. Mm-hmm. Now, this this isn't to say that their heads are small by any means. When they completely submerge, those nostrils close and their ears fold to prevent water from entering them. Okay. Yeah. All right. Something that I think a lot of people think of when they think of hippos from, like, nature documentaries are the yawn. Like when they open their mouths really, really big, they can open their jaws up to 150 degrees. Oh my gosh. 180 being totally flat. Right. right? This is just shy of being a straight line. Yeah. Yeah. And it's intimidating too, because they've got these uh, big, sharp teeth and tusks, right? Uh, Speaking of which, those tusks can grow up to 50 centimeters long or 20 inches, and they sharpen when they grind against each other when the hippo grazes. So let's talk about what hippos eat real quick. They eat grass on land, usually. (sighs) Thank goodness. So at night, they will leave the river uh, and find grass to feed on, on land. So the teeth aren't really for eating at all. It is nothing short of a miracle for us as humans that they eat plants and not meat. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's funny you mentioned that. (laughs) So they have been observed eating dead animals. There you go. Uh, There it is. But the reason isn't really known because their digestive tract isn't made to digest meat. So it's thought it could be due to illness or nutritional deficiencies for the individuals that are observed doing that. Hmm. Not quite known. Maybe they were just feeling adventurous that day. Maybe they were <laughs> bored of grass and lily pads and they were just ready to move on to something. They were trying to spice things up a little bit. <laughs> that dead zebra looks good. They're like, I had grass yesterday. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the things that try to eat them. So the young are sometimes predated by lions, hyenas, and crocodiles. Uh, so those are some of the top predators in that part of Africa. But besides humans, the adults have no real predators. Sure. There's nothing that is really going to step to a fully grown, healthy hippopotamus. Yeah, especially since they spend so much time in the water. There's nothing in the water other than maybe like a crocodile. Maybe like a crocodile at full size would be like 
have the best chance at taking a hippo down, but still, I think a hippo's big enough that, like, I don't think a crocodile could get a good roll in there. No, not at all. Yeah. And hippos are rarely by themselves, too. That's so. true. Yeah. You could pick off the one, but... Yep. <laughs> it's not advised. <laughs> Uh, so that's all I have for effectiveness. I feel like they're doing just fine in their habitat, and there's not a whole lot stopping them um, besides humans, but I'll talk about that later. <laughs> Try as they might. <laughs> Next up is ingenuity. These are smart things. Could be tool use, could be interesting methods of foraging or hunting, that sort of thing. I'm giving a 6 out of 10 for hippos. Didn't find a whole lot. They are social species, and they are usually in groups of 20 to 100 individuals. So they'd be pretty big groups, kind of crowded up in a river, especially during the dry seasons. So here's my main point of ingenuity. Oh, boy. This is something they do. It is known as dung showering. Okay, all right. <laughs> I think it's the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> so they'll do this to mark territory, basically, or intimidate, I guess. So they'll point their rear at their target. Mm -hmm. They'll lift their rear. They will release dung and urine at the same time. And they'll use their tail to scatter it. In like a helicopter sort of motion. <laughs> like. It's kind of like a sprinkler. Like. <laughs> it's nasty. It is. <laughs> so like I said, that's used to show dominance and to mark territory. You can see videos of this on YouTube. It's I find it very funny. <laughs> I Okay. I guess <laughs> they're working with the tools they have available to them, right? <laughs> they're playing with the hand they were dealt, man. Like, <laughs> And they'll do this in zoos, like in their exhibits at zoos. So I love that. That's great. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've ever been to a zoo with a hippo. Mm -hmm. Animal Kingdom. Oh, yeah, one. you're right. I didn't see too, too much of the hippo, though, if I remember correctly. Mm. I think we saw the hippo, but the hippo was sleeping. Yeah. So there's that. That's great. <laughs> I love that very much. They have communication. They communicate through different kinds of honking sounds, <laughs> which are very loud. Honking is an interesting way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. And when a big group of them gets going together, it's very, very loud, kind of equivalent to a loud rock concert, actually, in terms of decibels. Can I really quick uh, get a quick sample of what that honking sounds like? No. Oh, no. you never say yes. I forgot, for one. But <laughs> <laughs> so I would be totally making it up. You never do the impressions <laughs> that I want you to do. Maybe one day. Okay. Maybe for a bonus episode. <laughs> and my last point for ingenuity is they're protective of their young. So many harmful or deadly encounters with humans happen when the hippo involved is pregnant or is a hippo protecting a calf. Yeah, because you often hear about hippos being very aggressive. Yeah, so they're very territorial. For for an herbivore, they do have kind of a tendency to prefer the fight option rather yeah. than flight. So I think that comes from one their size and two. <laughs> right. Like what are you gonna do? They know. They know what they're yeah. they know their worth. Like they know what they can handle. And their their social structure is such that when they're competing for mates, they are fighting with those big tusks and jaws, you know, sometimes killing each other over it. So they have the practice in fighting and the tools to do so. This is the perfect storm of animal not to be trifled with yeah moving on to aesthetics this is how the hippo looks and is how cute they be mm -hmm. i'm only giving them a six out of ten what are you doing 
Uh, some adjectives I would use to describe them. <laughs> Big barrel. Yeah. Pink. Uh-huh. Always moist. <laughs> <laughs> cute face. Weird tail. Yeah. Uh, babies are very cute. Oh, gosh. Oh, a good baby hippo. is just <laughs> It hits the spot. Yeah. And they're born like 100 pounds, but still. <laughs> uh, and honk. <laughs> <laughs> now... Hold on. Are you familiar with Fiona the hippo? A little bit. Fiona the hippo at the Cincinnati Zoo, who is kind of like a national superstar, like the hippo ambassador for like the world. She's beautiful. I can't get past the the murder cow thing. (laughs) (laughs) It is a dangerous pig but it's okay because i mean honestly as long as you leave them alone they're cute from a considerable distance yeah but i think one of the problems is people will stumble upon them by accident in the river oh no (laughs) oh because they're hiding right they're i mean they can be hard to see if you're not specifically looking for them although how are you gonna miss like how many did you say you're in a group 20 to 50 or something 20 to 100 20 to 100 uh, 10,000 pound monsters. Well, so How are you going to miss that? Well, I'd also read that when a female is pregnant and it gets towards the end of their pregnancy, they will self-isolate from the rest of the herd. Mm. So that could be a problem. So if you find a hippo by itself, it's likely pregnant and very aggressive. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and another note about aesthetics. They're mostly hairless except for some wiry hair that's on their like muzzle, I guess you would call it, and also the, the ends of their tails. Kind of whiskers almost. Yeah, yeah. I think they're so cute. I'm sorry. I think they're so cute. They just, they just look like big poop machines to it's me. a big... Well, okay. <laughs> well, they don't look like poop machines until they start flinging their poop. But outside of those times, Mm-mm. they're cute. <laughs> it's just any moment. They can just say, deploy the poop. <laughs> <laughs> So that's aesthetic. Have you considered the have you considered the ears though? They do flop. Have you thought about that? They are Did cute. you factor the ears they in? They are cute. Maybe I bump it to a seven. Okay. <laughs> You've convinced me. Thank you. All right. Now, miscellaneous info about our hippo friends. First of all, their conservation status with the IUCN is listed at vulnerable, with their population trend stable. And that was last assessed in twenty sixteen. So some of the things they have to face include habitat loss to humans, of course, with agriculture and just populations. And they are hunted for food and also to lessen encounters with humans. And also their tusks are part of the illegal ivory trade. Lots of the international and national laws that protect elephant ivory usually ignore hippo ivory. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. So they're not they're not as legally protected. I imagine if you're able to take down a hippo. That is a substantial amount of meat that you're going to be getting from that animal. Yeah. That um, is so much food you're going to get. That is like a high yield game, yeah, right? Yeah, there are uh, there are parts of Africa that depend on, depend on them for food. Yeah, I mean I don't blame them. That's yeah. like that's a good deal if you if that's like a high risk high reward scenario. Mm-hmm. So earlier in the segment I mentioned hippos in Colombia. That being the South American country. Yeah, let's work through that. Let's <laughs> unpack what's happening there. So, so far I've only mentioned Africa uh, in terms of where these guys are located. So you might be asking, how did they get to South America? And that is because of Pablo Escobar. So those unfamiliar, Pablo Escobar was a Colombian drug lord 
who pretty much ran the cocaine trade in the United States in the 80s and 90s. Okay. Escobar was shot and killed in 1993 by Colombian police during a shootout. Now, here's where the hippos come into play. After his death, the Colombian government took over his luxurious estate, which included a personal zoo. Of the animals in the zoo, all were relocated save for the four hippos he had in this zoo. That seems like that would be a high-priority item. I guess they just didn't know what to do with these <laughs> several thousand pounds aquatic mammals. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but that seems like that would maybe be the first thing on the list, right? Like, I don't know. This is the first thing we need to figure out. So for one reason or the other, I guess they figured the best thing to do would just be leave them in a pond and let them fend for themselves. Surely nothing will come of this. <laughs> it turns out Colombia is a great climate for hippos. <laughs> There is now thought to be between 80 and 100 hippos in Colombia now, oh, starting from those four. That's too many. <laughs> that's too many. So they're found in the remains of that estate and also the Magdalena River, which is that main river that flows through the country. That's their river now. Very much. There's debates on whether to get rid of them or not, but since they aren't doing any real harm beyond introducing extra nutrients to the waterways, there's not a whole lot to push for it. And the, the harm from the extra nutrients has to do with algae blooms and fish die-offs. Yeah. We kind of know this in Florida pretty pretty closely. This is our thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they've tried before. They've, they've talked about killing hippos or uh, castrating them or capturing them, but it proves too difficult, too expensive, too dangerous. <laughs> I was about to say, like, <laughs> wish you would. Like, best of luck to you. But surprisingly, they haven't had any major injuries or deaths related to hippos in Colombia. Sure. Surprising. Probably because they know better than to be messing around in the water where there's hippos. Yeah. So, I mean, for right now, they're just taking a wait-and-see approach. So they might just be a permanent fixture of Colombia. <laughs> uh, the whole Pablo Escobar story is a wild ride. Now, the last thing. Uh-huh. I mentioned the United States almost had hippos. Yeah. And not just in zoos. Tell me about it. So according to Ripley's.com, and that is Ripley's Believe It or Not, because mm -hmm. I don't know where else to get accurate history facts. Are we are we <laughs> believing it or not? It's, what's the deal here? I'm going to go with the first one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> in 1910, over 100 years ago, Louisiana Congressman Robert Brassard introduced H.R. 23261 also known as the Hippo Bill, which was designed to secure $250,000 in funding for the import of useful animals, including hippos, into the United States. Useful for what exactly? So here's the crazy part. <laughs> so I mentioned this is the congressman from Louisiana. Yes. So the hope was that they would introduce hippos to the Louisiana bayous. Bad. <laughs> to be raised for meat as an alternative to cattle. Uh, mm. And... Also, there was thought they could eat the recently invasive water hyacinths from Japan. So, yeah, this is going to turn into a little lady who <laughs> swallowed the fly situation, like, but like skipping all of the steps in the middle. They're like, we have an invasive plant. Let's bring in an invasive 10,000-pound uh, hippopotamus <laughs> to take care of this plant. Well, think, think about the time, too. So this was in 1910, so they were having a severe meat shortage for the population of the United States. Um, so the thought was, you know, hippos don't need the same kind of pastures and grasslands that cattle do. Why not hippos? But it's thought that they weren't... The people in charge of trying to get this bill passed were not aware of how aggressive and dangerous hippos could be. The New York Times at the time coined the phrase, Lake Cow Bacon. 
Lake Cow Bacon. Yes, describing the flavor of the hippo meat. And that bill obviously ultimately failed. I'm delighted to know that it even that they even tried. <laughs> I'm proud of them for putting themselves out there like that. They shot their shot. <laughs> it was misguided, but chase your dreams. And there's there's a whole story between the guys that were pushing it too. So if if our listeners want to go look into that, it's an interesting story too outside of the animal aspect. But yeah, we were this close from Louisiana being known for bayous and Creole culture and Mardi Gras and also hippos. <laughs> so I was thinking, like, can you imagine with how, like we talked about in the last episode with Emily Bell, where we talked about how Florida is the number two most affected state by invasive species. Can you imagine? <laughs> can you even imagine if hippos got a foothold here? Because like down in South Florida, down in the Everglades, yeah. like that would kind of be... A pretty great spot for hippos. It would. We already have a big problem with like basically everything ever <laughs> from the entire planet has just congregated in the Everglades. Can you imagine if just hippos were piled on top of that? You're like, okay, so we've got these aquatic mammals from Africa. We've got these large reptiles from Southeast Asia. It's no longer Florida at that point. <laughs> That's what they meant by America being like the big melting pot. But now animals. It's the land of opportunity <laughs> for invasive species. See, we can go to a safari adventure in our backyard. I think at that point, if, if hippos had really kind of taken off in Florida, mm. I think that would be the point where you can just kind of cordon the whole state off and be like, this is no longer suitable for human habitation. <laughs> this no longer belongs to us. Yeah. <laughs> this has gotten out of hand. Yeah. Nature has reclaimed it. So interesting history. I love that. That's great. That's yeah. a good animal with some interesting stories. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, baby. No problem. Before we move on, I'd like to take a quick second to shout out to our patrons on Patreon. As many of you know, the revenue that we get from our ads goes towards wildlife conservation organizations. So we offset the cost of producing the show by um, setting up our Patreon. And we would like to say a special thank you to the following patrons. Megan Clark, Vikram Baliga, Ashley Tucker, Jacob Jones, Paul Chomo, the Jungle Gym Queen, Brianna Feinberg, Christina Sanders, and April Kamik. Thanks, y'all. All right, Punny. What you got for me? Did you call me Punny? Yeah. <laughs> Can you not? <laughs> this week, I have the Northern Mockingbird. Aw. The species name is Mimus polyglottos. That's fun. I know, isn't it? And this was submitted by Susanna Lewis. Thank you, Susanna, thank um, you. from the Thornvale podcast. Mm. So thank you for asking for this cool animal. I'm getting my information from the Audubon Society, Ooh. Cornell University's Ornithology Lab, and also the Florida Museum of Natural History. This is a North American bird. Even though they're called the Northern Mockingbird, you actually mm -hmm. find them mostly in the South of the United States. Huh. Yeah. More like mostly in the Southeast, but they do kind of go all the way over to the West. Um, in the much farther North areas, you don't see them as much and then they'll migrate a lot if they live that far North. Um, but they don't necessarily all migrate. Just some of them do if they live really far north. Someone messed up on that name, huh? The Northern Mockingbird? <laughs> I, I didn't really see why they call them the Northern Mockingbird. Weird. Maybe in the North Hemisphere, 
I guess. Don't know. I don't know. So this is not a huge bird. They are eight to 10 inches long, which is 20 to 26 centimeters with a wingspan of like right around a foot, which is 30 to 35 centimeters. It's not a huge bird. It's not that big. So yeah, they're they're not impressively huge. Most of their body is this light gray or brown color, and they have darker colored wings that are very short and very rounded, which gives them kind of a an identifiable silhouette. And then the outside of their wings have these big white spots on them. Hmm. So when their wings are extended, it's pretty easy to look at one and know that that's what it is. But when their wings are folded in, they kind of look like just any other, like, kind of a drab gray bird. Okay. With, like, blackish wings. Hmm. Yeah. So, like I said, you're going to find these throughout most of the continental United States and also much of Mexico. You can find them in some of the northern parts of Mexico, too. Okay. In recent years, they have started to become more and more fond of urban areas. So, actually, these days, you are more likely to find them in urban areas than not. Hmm. So, they really do prefer to, like, live in more developed areas. Their taxonomic family is called Mimidae. It might be Mimidae. could be hmm. either. And this is a family of songbirds known for their mimicry ability. Yeah. So there are actually 17 other different species of mockingbirds. Wow. But uh, Mimus polyglottos is the only one that you can find in North America. Okay. And that species name polyglottus comes from the word polyglot. Have you heard this word before? Uh, Is that referring to the throat? No. um, So polyglot is a word that refers to someone who speaks multiple languages. Okay. Okay. Yeah polyglot that's why they have that name because they speak the languages of many different birds awesome it's really cool that's kind of your intro to the mockingbird i'll get started with my ratings and i'm following the same format as christian as always for effectiveness i give the mockingbird a seven out of ten so i'm gonna kind of talk about the physical adaptations that they have so mockingbirds and other songbirds which i mentioned earlier they're called passerines Hmm. which means that they belong to the order passeriformes And a defining characteristic of these birds is the arrangement of their toes. And these are the birds that have three toes pointing forward and one toe pointing back. Okay. And they're these really skinny, long, they're not super long, right? They're not as long as like a wading birds or anything, but they have these really skinny toes and they're very, very flexible. Mm -hmm. So what these are really good for is gripping branches and perching. Right. So birds outside of passerines have this really wide variety of toe shapes and arrangements. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, some birds have like two toes forward two toes back some of them are all wonky some of them are i don't know they can be really wild but if you see one that's got the three toes forward and the one toe back that's a passerine that's what that is okay yeah so i also mentioned their wings so their wings are really short and really rounded so what this is really good for is these short bursts of speed and quick takeoffs Mm. so they are good at kind of like flitting around in these short bursts, but they can't maintain a high speed for very long. Mm. Um, So you won't see them necessarily soaring or, you know, flying too far at high speeds. So what they really use these short wings for is for they'll, they'll perch up high. And then when they see something on the ground that they're interested in, then they will quickly fly down to it and then quickly fly back up to their perch. So they're doing kind of short bursts down to the ground and back. 
So they are omnivores. They'll forage for seeds or fruits or something like that that are interesting, but they will also hunt insects. Hmm. So they're kind of opportunistic. They'll take what they can get. So that kind of wraps things up for effectiveness. It's kind of a straightforward yeah. songbird. This is the, I think this is the first songbird we've talked about on the show. I mean, if you don't consider the raven a songbird. Do, is a raven considered a songbird? No, I was just expressing how much I like the sounds they make. It is beautiful. Like a croak. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the raven, because similar to the raven, this ties into the ingenuity for the mockingbird. I did give the mockingbird an ingenuity score of 9 out of 10. Nice. Yes. This is a very clever bird. (laughs) So obviously, mockingbirds get their name from their ability to mimic the songs of other birds, and their repertoire can include (laughs) as many as 200 different songs. Okay. And it is really cool to hear them do it. They are like rapid cycling through songs. Like they'll, you'll hear them do like 30 different songs in a row. (laughs) It's really cool. Whereas like, okay, so earlier we were sitting on our back porch and we were listening to like, we, you could hear a lot of birds, Mm -hmm. but each bird has kind of one call that it just repeats over and over again. Sure. The mockingbird is blazing through like 30 of them. I'm sure that's wonderful to listen to <laughs> it's so much more pleasant to listen to than the same one over and over and over and over again true so that's why a lot of people like mockingbirds like the way that they sound because it's a little okay. bit more varied and song-like than like the repetitive sound of a songbird now we'll say the repetitive songs were great for falling asleep to. oh i bet they were <laughs> <laughs> So what is cool is that it's not only birds that they can imitate. They will even pick up other environmental noises around them. So it could be dogs barking. It could be car alarms. And it could even be like creaky gates or doors Hate that, that they will pick up on. Now, I have I've, <laughs> I was watching a lot of videos of mockingbirds doing their thing. And I will say that it is not a pitch perfect imitation. Okay. It's not like a parrot will do, you know, Mm. like a parrot or a raven can do like an exact spot on imitation where it sounds exactly like that sound. Sure. This definitely sounds like a bird imitating something. Okay. Like it still has that kind of chirpy tweety sound, but they're definitely like mimicking the tone of that thing. Okay. Yeah. Where you can tell like, oh, that's definitely a bird making the sound of a dog barking. (laughs) It's cool. It's really interesting to hear because it's funny because they are repeating a sound, but kind of in their own language, like in their own uh, style, which I think is it's a it's a cover. It's a good cover. That that must be confusing for a dog. (laughs) (laughs) What on earth? Wait, that feather dog just said the thing back to me. Why is that dog so high up? (laughs) So. My question when I heard this was, why do they do this? Why Mm -hmm. is this a thing that is interesting to them? So there are a couple of theories as to why mockingbirds might benefit from developing these large, diverse songbooks. So the first one I came across was that by imitating the songs of other species, they might be able to trick members of that species into thinking that their territory is more densely populated than it is. Mm. So this could create the illusion that this might not be like an ideal area for that bird to come into because it's already really competitive. Oh. So they might make it seem like, oh, there's already this bird here that has a territory established. So you don't want to move in here because this is already someone's someone else's spot. Mm-hmm. So they're creating the illusion of competition to keep other birds out of their territory. Okay. Um 
that hasn't been substantiated. Like I couldn't find any like research into whether that's true or not. Um, but another theory that I saw out there floating around was that male mockingbirds who have learned more songs can be believed by the females to have gathered more experience and therefore lived a longer life. So this could be an indication that they're more successful foragers um, or that they're better defenders of their territory. So this could signal to the female, oh, he's lived for a really long time. He's heard a lot of songs. He's a good mate. You want to mate with him. So then that, of course, by being desirable to the female, that then selects for having a wide variety of songs. And then over time, you get more and more. Okay. Interesting. I think both of those theories are really interesting. Uh, I didn't see a lot to back either one up, but... Both of them are kind of floating around out there as possibilities. Mm. So another thing about them is that besides being very clever impressionists, there is one other personality trait that mockingbirds are known for that I think kind of ties our two species for this week together, and that is unbridled rage. (laughs) They are highly aggressive (laughs) when it comes to defending their territory. So they're extremely territorial and they will not hesitate to attack an intruder that is much larger and stronger than itself. Okay. So this could be cats. This could be dogs. This could be humans. They will step to you. Why do birds do this? (laughs) It's not wise. (laughs) And there's, and they're solitary too. Like they're not like, it's not like they're going to flock up on you. Right. Like it's just the one. They they know their bones are hollow, right? <laughs> this this feisty behavior it does make predators kind of think twice about bothering them. Um, kind of their their biggest predators are just birds that are bigger than them, right? So like birds of prey or owls sure. or stuff like that. But since they are prone to fighting back, the predator might kind of go for an easier meal. But I still deducted uh one ingenuity point for their refusal to pick their battles because <laughs> they're really um going for some uh, unwise targets <laughs> i mean because like once you realize the bird is all bark yeah it's done yeah you're like what are you doing <laughs> what is this <laughs> done yeah something that i thought was really interesting about this was that they even recognize repeat offenders and develop grudges wow yes they can single out particular victims that they will then attack more often than others these are bullies (laughs) they're so mean (laughs) um and they're surprisingly good at distinguishing humans from each other like they can tell people apart from other people so i'm gonna i'm reading this straight copied and pasted off of the florida museum of natural history's website Mm mm-hmm When we saw this, we became curious about why it is they seem to really only dislike a certain number of us. So we decided to do an experiment when we were studying the mockingbird nesting behavior. We divided up our students into two groups, one of whom would stand next to the nest and not touch it. And another group would stand next to the nest, but actually touch the nest. We found that after a single trial, the mockingbird learned which humans were a threat and which ones weren't. And they would start attacking the ones that touched the nest and they would (laughs) ignore the ones that didn't. They did this over and over again. And the more the students did this, the stronger their reaction became until eventually we found that they could even pick out the people who had touched the nest from a crowd of a hundred people Whoa. <laughs> and they would ignore everyone else, go right for the person who had touched their 
their nest and it didn't matter what clothes <laughs> they were wearing, how they were wearing their hair, whether they were wearing a hat. They were obviously learning to recognize the face of these people. That's crazy. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really impressed by their dedication to trolling mockingbirds because <laughs> boy they didn't like it did they <laughs> they really were not keen on their nests being the, touched the test was ba basically touch no touch <laughs> no touch <laughs> please sir please sir no touching of the nest <laughs> angry <laughs> just a bunch of researchers <laughs> Making mockingbirds really mad. <laughs> <laughs> now who's the mocked? Very good. Oh. Yeah, so um, these are feisty little birds. Mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting. They have a lot of personality. They're very clever and they're very wily. They seem um, kind of uh, like Loki type of personality. You know sure. what I mean? Interesting behavior from a... These uppity birds. From a very... <laughs> Uh, angsty bird. Uh, this brings me to aesthetics for the mockingbird. I give it a six out of ten. It's fine. It's a it's it's a it's a bird. This yeah. is a bird. Yeah, get him. Yeah, it's fine. It's just fine. It's pretty plain. It's just a gray bird. You know, like there's not much. I don't think there's much to say about the way that they look. Yeah, they're just fine. They're okay. They're not ugly. They're not very pretty either. This is a bird. Anyway, is <laughs> <laughs> <His> bird. <laughs> So for miscellaneous information to wrap up, their conservation status is of least concern. They're doing fine. Uh, they're totally great. There's so many of them. Just like I'm imagining that assessment. Just like, we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> no concern. Next animal. <laughs> um, and a, a little tidbit is that the mockingbird is the state bird of Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Texas. What are y'all doing? Apparently, this is the most popular state bird. Like, this is the bird that most the most states have chosen as their state bird. We run out of birds. <laughs> <laughs> Mom said it's my turn on the bird. <laughs> There's only one bird. Apparently, it also used to be the state bird of South Carolina, but they changed it. Okay, good on you, South Carolina. I know. Did, Find did, your own path. Wait, what is it now? Do you know? I don't know. Mm. But still. I'm talking about <laughs> mockingbirds. I don't care what it is now. So a lot of people, um, I don't know how I, I don't know how well known it is outside of the United States, but there is a very popular classical novel called To Kill a Mockingbird. It's not actually about killing mockingbirds. Don't worry. It's a beautiful book that literally every single American citizen has been required to read at some point in the public school system. What? No? <laughs> I, I'm sure I was required to at some point. Oh. <laughs> I would. I have been required to read To Kill a Mockingbird on three separate occasions from three separate schools. <laughs> there were three different schools I went to where I had to read To Kill a Mockingbird. I, I couldn't even give you the highest level of synopsis <laughs> <laughs> what that book is about. It's not about mockingbirds at all. Don't worry. But the title is a reference to this sort of conversation that this character has at some point in the book mm. where he explains this idea that it is a sin to kill a mockingbird because mockingbirds are thought of as being very innocent 
and uh, pure sort of like only the, the idea of it is like they don't do anything wrong to anybody. All they do is like sit there and provide beautiful music for us to listen to. And they just like all they do is sing their beautiful song and they don't bother anybody. So that's why it's like a sin to kill them. And then that's the title of the book is To Kill a Mockingbird. I think whoever said that was a bunch of mockingbirds disguised as a person. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, like, it seems like their aggression is retaliatory in nature. Okay. Right? It's not like they're going to seek you out. So these, and... these aren't like the magpie videos we see. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that time I saw a baby bird on the sidewalk and uh-huh. I went to go take a picture of it and then the mama bird came and attacked me? Yeah. I think that's what this was. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I was just taking a picture of this little baby bird on the sidewalk and then <laughs> <laughs> no eat no <laughs> no she was very mad at me and so i had to run away because she she followed me when i oh wow it's like I, I i i got up and left and she like chased me <laughs> but yeah so that is why the book is called that has very little to do with the actual mockingbird itself but i know that a lot of people are probably making that association in their mind because if you are from america you've probably read to kill a mockingbird unless you're christian yeah it's <laughs> Did y'all know Christian's illiterate? <laughs> no, more delinquent Christian than anything. cannot read. <laughs> That's why he only does the podcast, because he has to talk because he can't read. <laughs> we reference notes, but mine are really a picture book. <laughs> you should have seen the one about the, the dung flinging. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you were laughing so hard over there. You had a little, um, a little PowerPoint over there. Picture slides. Yep, can't read, but can can operate office and (laughs) (laughs) it's all very accessible and user-friendly these days well that's it for the mocking bird i thought it was pretty cool i thought it was an interesting bird yeah bird with tude i like it yeah i can relate it's okay i too (laughs) am a bird with attitude (laughs) oh you know what i have that Mm. we haven't done in like a billion years Mm. audience responses oh i've got a good one okay this is super overdue because this is from Benjamin Lancer. This was in response to the Tuatara episode, which was like a few weeks ago. Yeah. So Benjamin said that he wanted to add something about the parietal eye, which we talked about in that episode. That is the little third eye that the Tutar has that like detects light and stuff. Yeah. So Benjamin says, as Ellen noted, a lot of animals have a parietal eye, but so do we, sort of. Hmm. In lizards and fish, the parietal eye is a sort of lens in the skull where light can access a part of the brain known as the pineal gland and parapineal organ. These parts of the brain are really important for regulating circadian rhythms like sleep cycles and a whole bunch of things really, but that's the focus for now. In animals with the parietal eye, the light can go right through the lens of the parietal eye and activate these brain areas directly. In mammals, including us, we have a special kind of photoreceptor in our retina that sends messages to the pineal gland and activate it, completely bypassing the normal visual system. Hmm. This is why people with blindness don't necessarily have dysfunctional circadian rhythms. But here's the spooky part. Our pineal gland is still photoreceptive. The cells there still produce photopigments that respond to light, meaning if, for one reason or another, you replaced the part of your skull above the pineal gland with something transparent, you would have a fully functional parietal eye as well. 
Crazy. Yes. The neural architecture is all there. The only reason it doesn't function is because our skull is closed up. It's an evolutionary holdover from earlier ancestors. Huh. Yeah, that's crazy, right? So he says, he goes on to say, it's pretty cool, but it's also really useful. Researchers can embed light-producing diodes into the skulls of mammals above the pineal gland and turn them on to experimentally regulate what time of day the animal thinks it is, Mm. enabling them to test how animals react to different kinds of conflicting stimuli. It's cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really neat. So Benjamin is a was the one that provided all of the really awesome information on dragonfly brains. Yeah, that you remember was that? Very interesting. That was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of interesting stuff going on in the brain. I have one other one that I don't have like written in front of me, but I'm just relaying a story that was told to me okay. after the spoonbill episode. When we talked about the spoonbill, I talked about the way their feathers are tinted by the carotenoids in the shrimp that they eat. Mm-hmm. So Megan Inez Clark, our friend who also requested the hippopotamus and is also a patron. Thank you, Megan. Um, messaged me after listening to that episode and said that um, when her daughter was a baby, she when she was born, she had jaundice and was in like the NICU for, for jaundice. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, over time it went away. Everything was fine for a while. And then a couple of years later, um, when her daughter had had it was like a couple years later she's like a toddler like starting to eat like foods and stuff sure her nose started to turn yellow and her like just parts of her face started to turn yellow she's like oh no the jaundice is back she got really worried about it and was like worried that that she was gonna have these really bad health problems because her skin was starting to turn yellow again yeah she took her daughter to to see a doctor about it and the doctor was like does she eat a lot of carrots and she's like yeah that's her favorite food she eats carrots all the time she's like that's what it is It was the carotenoids in the carrots that were tinting her skin yellow. That's crazy. Yeah. So apparently this works for humans too. (laughs) We talked about how it tints the feathers of the spoonbill, but apparently it also works on people. (laughs) If if you eat too many carrots, you will turn yellow. I wonder what that threshold is. How many carrots do you have to eat before you start turning (laughs) yellow? Join us next episode when we find out. (laughs) Because like sometimes we eat carrots once a week, right? It's got to be so much more than once a week. Okay. It has to be so much more than that. Like, it's got to be an everyday thing. Interesting. Both very interesting. We have some really, really, really cool people in our audience and in our (laughs) community. Like, y'all always hit us with some really cool stuff. For sure. So we appreciate y'all. And that wraps things up for us this episode. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We hope that we have helped you um, lift your spirits during these troubling times, or at the very least, I hope we've distracted you for about an hour roughly so thank you very much for spending this time with us uh if you want to hang out with us in the virtual space as all of our hangouts currently are (laughs) (laughs) um you can connect with us on facebook twitter or instagram just search the title of the show and you will find us if you have an animal species that you want us to talk about on the show you could submit those to us either on social media or to my email address, which is ellen at justthezooofus.com. And I want to finish up by thanking um, Louis Zong for allowing us to use his song Adventuring off of the album B-Sides. It's great. It's really good. That's all we got for this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. And and thank you, Christian. Thank you, Ellen. <laughs> Bye. Bye, y'all. Flatten that curve. Yeah. Yeah.